Uh, Sensei Steve, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Andrew. Not too bad, not too bad. Just finished my private class. Awesome. And how did that uh, go to kick off the end of the week? Oh, you know, it's, uh, it's a regular student. He's been training with me for over a year and a half. He, you know, it's like a well-oiled machine. He knows exactly what I'm expecting him to do. Egg, egg, I understand completely. I just uh, finished uh, like killing a leg day myself with uh, with like squats, uh, a lot of uh, more like lunges. It's what I do before uh, I usually train with uh, my coach for privates on one-on-one. But uh, luckily, I got the day off. But it's always good. I'm a firm believer in uh, getting training done in the morning, whether it's martial arts or uh, resistance training. It does make the day much better when you want to when you're trying to be productive that's also very personal right if you like that if you hold your body works that some people i know that some people work out at six o'clock in the morning right and it works for them right so that's perfect some i know also some people work out at uh, 11 p.m close to midnight you know so it depends on the lifestyle and on, you know the body type whatever yeah, that's something that I've really learned too. Like some people, there's some people that I know that uh, just don't do well in the morning. They need to like get go through the day, and you know, it's also as you said, lifestyle. Maybe the job they have like a job where they have to work from exactly. six in the morning till midnight. But uh, I should have done this the show intro right away. But uh, beyond the fight, it's a bonus episode. So the show's name is Beyond the Fight. Uh, once again, I say it fast sometimes. And today I'm joined by the one and only. One a four-star general in the Kyokushin world in Ontario, Sensei Fogarasi of Contact Kicks. Very honored to have you once again, Sensei. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm always uh, connected with the, you know, community of you know, martial arts and you know, especially Kyokushin, and I, I followed your uh, your podcast. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I love and I follow your page. Uh, I really like. Uh, promoting it. I love the content you post day in, day out. Uh, I show it to my uh, coach that uh, uh, you might know, actually. His name is uh, Mohamed Chik. And whenever yes, we talk... I, uh, I know him. We only talked, I think, once. We met mm-hmm. only once. But I saw his fights, uh, you know, on YouTube. And I know he's a well-regarded fight. I mean, fight Yes, yes, he's uh, and you know, whenever we talk uh, about your about the gym, like we always talk about the content you have, your philosophy, and um, I just want to also give him a shout out because he was the one that pushed me to like contact you. But there was also uh, Sensei Junior Russo that uh, who's a mutual friend of ours who said very yeah. high things yeah. about you, like very, very good things. Sensei Junior, yeah, I mean Sensei Russo is uh, is incredible. His dojo also is impressive with his uh, team, with his fighters. We always meet at the tournaments at the Gold Cup or whatever tournaments we go, and uh, we have a little quick chat always, and uh, always a pleasure. Yes, there's him, and also uh, Scott, who uh, works with you from the Marshall Way blog. Like He was really um, also a pivotal uh, person in helping make this, facilitate this conversation and pushing me to do my podcast, encouraging it. Like He heard the, the Junior Russo one, and just said he's like you have a knack for it so i want to give a shout out to those guys because you know without like uh, my without like the peer group i have i mean this doesn't happen you know it, it's it's harder for when you're doing it on your own but when you have a good team that supports you and uh, keeps like encouraging it makes it easier and you want to do more so this is why i love like connecting with people like you and others in the martial arts world 
That's right. But you know, in the end, in the end, you made a conscious decision to start whatever you started, right? And then things just happen. All everything falls in place if you have the right energy. You know? Exactly. I'm I'm starting to become a firm believer of that. When you have the right intentions, and you want, and you have the desire that goes with it, and the passion, everything as you as just does fall in place. I'm learning slowly. I, I walk as Abraham Lincoln quoted, "I walk slowly, sensei, but never backwards." <laughs> So, um, you have a very interesting story. I've looked at your dojo's website. Um, I've even spoken with Scott about it. And you came, you were born in Romania, and the era you were born in was really interesting. So, I want people to really understand your your history uh, growing up in the Cold War era. Um, and what got you into Kyokushin? I really feel it's uh, it could be a good story for for historical purposes and just anyone looking to like really motivate themselves. Right, right. So I, yeah, for me, being born there, I didn't know any better. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I wouldn't call it Cold War, like because that was called mostly by American Americans called it Cold War. For me, it was just communism. You know. <laughs> just, <laughs> A, a bad spot to be, you know, I mean, food was racial, you know, you had food tickets, food stamps, you had to cook, you were allowed to eat only that much bread, that much milk, that much, that many eggs, you know, a, a week, you know, so everything was closed, like the borders were closed, you couldn't travel, uh, every, you know, it, it was quite, uh, quite an interesting time, meaning that you had no freedom, right, I mean, whatever they gave you, whatever the government gave you, that's what you had. Like you could not choose, you know, to to buy things from the outside and to travel and to watch TV. Like even the TV channels, we had two TV channels, both government owned, where they were just making Chaucesco and you know. So it was uh, it, it almost like for the generations that uh, live, you know, today or people who lived in other countries in, in freedom in in the you know democracy. It's quite hard to understand how it was, but still, you know, we had, I can say we had, I had a good childhood, you know, and good family and uh, we were not rich, but we had everything we needed, you know, and uh, I went to school and, you know, we had activities and it wasn't like North Korea or something, (laughs) but, uh, you know, still, uh, uh, I would say for a child, it wasn't extremely bad. Things get a little bit worse when you started to grow and you started to realize that, hey, wait a second, uh, you know, the world out there is different. Why are we living like this? You know, so once I became a teenager, you know, 12, 13, 14, then your eyes are a little bit open and then you start to be a little bit bothered by what's happening around you. Right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, as, a, as a kid, you know, everything was fine. And we, we you know, we had pretty much everything we needed. Even though we not 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 with the abundance that there is now, uh, we had some uh, you know things that we did not get on time or not enough food or whatever. But overall, it was great. You know, I I, I can't really say that I was uh, marked for life because of that. You know. 
Yes, and uh, as you said, you were pointing out, like you were coming up, you were growing up towards uh, the end phase where, uh, you know, like the other Eastern Bloc countries were slowly, you know, shifting to a more democratic and maybe mixed market or capitalistic system. So it was kind of like an interesting era that you had the chance to grow up in as history goes on. And, you know, we learn more about um, the like about that period. Um, and what got you to dis- to discover Kyokushin? How did that happen in your that youth? Was just a coincidence, basically, right? Because at that time, you got to remember, we didn't have uh, obviously internet, mm-hmm. and we had very little uh, written information as well. Uh, uh, martial arts uh, being banned in that country in Romania at that time, right? So you could only legally practice judo, boxing, and wrestling, right? That's what those were Olympic sports. So those were the only one recognized by the government. Uh, there were no private clubs or anything, right? So you could not really, uh, you know, go on the street and see a storefront dojo with karate or kickboxing. Or that was just, uh, you know, unheard, right? So you had mm-hmm. to, like, underground, which we were used to do a lot of underground things, things you know. Uh, so you had to kind of, like, word of mouth and find out here and there who's doing what, right? And mm-hmm. uh, in my town, I, I was born in a little town, uh, only like 20,000 people. They had a judo club, which almost every town had one. So I joined judo around uh, age 11, 12. Um, before that, I was very interested, you know, watching martial arts movies. Uh, we had, uh, we had the, the Chinese martial arts movies, you know, the all old kung fu movies, uh, the cinema. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I was just puzzled. I was like, "Wow, that's just so beautiful, so like amazing what they do." Right? And then I joined judo, and uh, I did it for about a year. And then I slowly started realizing that the uh, higher levels, brown black belts, they would stay after class and uh, kind of practice more, right? And I was curious what what they're doing. Uh, and then I uh, asked one of them, "Hey, can I?" And I say, he's like, no, no, like, you know, this is not for you, blah, blah, blah. But I, I, uh, I hid, I hid in a, in a mushroom. Uh, and then when they locked the doors, everything, I kind of came out. He's like, yeah, I want to do it too. Kind of had no choice but accept me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they were doing karate. They were doing Shotokan karate. And they, the way they were doing it, we had uh, in the near, nearby city, the, the capital of our province, we had a medical university. Right, and so we had uh, exchange uh, uh, foreign students from, from France, from Spain, from whatever. Like, and uh, some of them it happened that they were black belts in Shotokan Kalai. So occasionally, those guys would travel to, to my judo dojo and teach uh, Shotokan. Okay, and started Shotokan. Right. So uh, again, this was not a club. This was just a bunch of guys getting together. We were not getting belts. We were not competing. We are not just, we just training, you know, with this guy from, uh, uh, he was from France. He was actually uh, an African guy from from France. Right. So it was quite interesting. And uh, then I uh, moved to another city for school when I was uh, 16. I trained uh, about two, three years in Judo and Shotokan. And then I moved to another city where I started school. And uh, not like, again, I had to find out where is the, the nearest uh, 
karate school or judo school or whatever, right? And it took a while, like a few months, to to find out that the, the nearest Shotokan dojo, because that's the only one I knew, is exist. Uh, I did not know about Kyokushin. Uh, again, keep in mind the context: no internet, no books, no nothing. And uh, I found out that the Shotokan dojo was extremely far, like about an hour bus ride and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, that's not going to happen. And uh, I was living in this city now, being at school there. And this was still in, on, on the communists. This was 1987. So we had, uh, you know, uh, dormitories and food and everything. I mean, place to live. And uh, the school was all free, obviously, all paid by the government. You had a contract with the government for three years for school and for job after you finished right away. Uh, so in meantime, I'm a huge... Uh, rock and metal fan like i listen to rock music a lot and even as a child i would go to concerts and this and that so i found out there's a band in that city it's called the cbu uh, city of cbu uh, in transylvania and i found out there's one of my favorite bands actually over there in cbu so i went to the club where they were doing rehearsals and they would allow you to sit uh, through the re uh, reversal uh, rehearsals you know just sit over there quietly and look at them how they rehearse to me that was like gold you know it's like oh that's so amazing just to hear the guitars and everything you know i loved it right mm -hmm. so i went there a few times and then this was like like a this was like a club it was like an activity club right it was the the railroads activity club because i was doing a railroad school i was getting ready to be a heavy machinery mechanic so anyway <laughs> i go to this uh uh, band uh, rehearsal and uh, on my way out when they are you know, when they finished I pass uh, in the hallway and the door was locked but I was hearing Oz and Kiai and everything people like doing karate stuff over there right so I picked through the keyhole and there you go they were doing some karate right mm -hmm. but the door, the door was locked so then I had to wait until they finished and just inquire some information and that's it. That moment, like, we immediately joined. And then later I found out it's actually Kyokushin Karate and it's different. And there's a whole story behind that, too. But, yeah, that's how it was just like a coincidence. Again, like I said before, uh, if you have the right attitude, <laughs> the universe conspires uh, for you to, you know, go in the right direction. Exactly. And, like, I could definitely relate to your experience where you, you first you did the judo, then you found Shotokan. For me, I did... <clears throat> Taekwondo at first, which I think is like the gateway martial art for those looking at traditional martial arts for whether it's a style of karate or uh, just like or Taekwondo. You that's uh, was my gateway. Um, I was impressed with it, but then I came across Kyokushin because due to Dolph Lundgren, you know, huge uh, star in Europe, and he's well known in as like a second Dan or now third Dan, and I just loved everything about. Uh, about what he did with fitness so that's what got me to to join it um so once you found this club by coincidence and then you know you're getting older now when did you come to canada and decide to own a dojo like what led to that in your mission oh, well, that, that's actually uh, it, it's funny like because i tell this story look when i found a uh, the dojo I, I you know requested for participating classes and enroll and that time you didn't have like free trial and this and that and you just had to enroll and that's it and uh i enrolled and uh first week 
when we did sparring on Friday, um, this guy broke my ribs. Like, uh, it was an older dude. I was, remember, I was 16, and this guy was, I don't know, in his 30s or something. And with the marsh, get it shoot on, he broke my ribs. Uh, and I was quite upset. And I said, this is not karate. This is, you know, you know remember, I was used to be the Shotokan, kind of like point system, sparring in and out a little bit, no touching, you know, just gentle, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to Kyokushin, and this guy just goes nuts on me with punches and low kicks and boom, 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 boom. Just destroyed me. And uh, I almost cried. I was like, this is not possible. Like, this guy is old. Like, <laughs> and because uh, I was under the impression that I'm tough, you know, when you're 16, the world is like, okay, well, you, you, you are, you're the toughest, right? Anyway, so this guy beat me off. And I didn't go back for like months. Like, I'm not going back. That's not karate. That's, uh, that's not the way it should be karate. Karate should be, you know, the way I thought should be in Shotokan and this and that, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my personality, I'm very st- stubborn. And I was like, this cannot happen. I got to go back. I got to go back and beat that guy. It's just, I cannot leave it like that. I want to. I want to prove to myself that I'm strong enough and good enough. Plus, it was the only dojo that you know, I knew in the area, and uh, it still it was like a 30-minute walk. I had to walk a 30-40 minute yeah? day. And, I mean, rain or shine, and the winter, and doesn't matter. I had to walk there. There were no public transit going there. Anyway, so I went back, and then slowly I started realizing that, you know, after talking with the instructor at that time and this and that, like, okay, well, this is different. It's full contact, and we actually kick and punch each other. And so they gave me a little brochure uh, that was just printed on white paper about Kyokushin Karate, right? And I read about Sosai Masoyama and the whole journey that he had. And then only later I started got access to some uh, VHS tapes and saw the Kyokushin tournaments and that was a process for about a year. It took me to actually realize what Kyokushin is all about, right? But uh, going back to your initial question about uh, opening a dojo, to me, it happened right then. Right then, in the first year of Kyokushin, I, I just had this thought, this feeling. It's like, this is what I want to do, you know? So I was 16, 17. And I'm like, this is it. This is the only thing I want to do. I just want to do Kyokushin or martial arts. And I want to just learn and teach and be around martial arts all my life. So basically, uh, that was it for me. Like from that moment, uh, nothing really interested me anymore that much. Like, so I built my life around training, around competition. I started competing in the nationals and provincials, everything internationally too, a few times. And uh, I just did not really uh, care much about anything else. You know, I sacrificed all my time and my money and to train and compete. And I opened my own dojo when I was blue belt at age 18 in Romania. That's really something else. Now, when you were competing, um, so this is now probably in the 90s, if I may assume. Uh, yeah. And, and okay, so now everything's open borders. You can go everywhere. What, in exactly. your experience, when you – so. In our first conversation, I still have the message. We were talking about uh, Holland, and I always said, I told you, I said, it's my dream to go to Holland to really yeah. see the kickboxing mecca of Europe. I believe it's Holland. I like that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to. Uh, you've never been, okay, so I'm sure you've been, maybe you've I've been, been there. To, not to the kickboxing gyms. So. 
Okay. What's uh, and um, what was your experience like going into different European countries and seeing their styles of martial arts? Mm, not, not. Uh, you know, Romania had uh, Eastern Europe in general. I mean, had good, good martial arts. So I wasn't impressed at all. Meaning, like, it's nothing that, like, wow, this is so much better. No, I, even today, you just look around. I mean, Eastern Europe and Russia, they have great martial arts. So, I mean, kickboxing included, right? You have uh, great uh, fighters in Romania. Boxing, too. We had Olympic champions uh, back in the days. And uh, judo, as well, we had Olympic champions. So, fighting uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, it's quite normal, right? I mean, uh, in school, we would fight. I mean, I wouldn't because I never had to. But it was not a big deal to fight on the street or fight at the school. It was just normal way to being raised up especially as a boy right it was just part of life hey somebody punched you punch him back whatever you know it's no big deal <laughs> uh, but uh yeah when i when i when the borders opened and when we went to seminar or tournament uh you know our level was good our level was good um we were actually influenced by the you know eastern european russian hungarian kyokushin and some japanese because we had some japanese instructors who come to romania but I still believe to this day that uh, the, the Eastern European Kyokushin is pretty good. I mean, you look at the Bulgarians, look at the Bulgarians, uh, Romanian, Hungarian, you know, and they, 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 they do great, great, uh, it's a great style of fighting and great training. They really do. Like it's ever since uh, the uh, ever since the end of communism and the age of the internet, it's as if a renaissance has happened when the world finally saw uh, like the Russians come in, like the Kurb- the Leshy Kurbanovs. Uh, yes. the Bulgarians, like, uh, uh, Z- what's his name? He's, he's come, I've seen him when, with seminars. He comes from Bulgaria, uh, and he's under your, your, um, organization's banner. I think his name is Zari. I'm going to butcher the name, Sensei or, or Senpai Zari. Uh, I'm not sure what you're talking about, but, he, uh, if you're talking about Zahari Damianov, he's that's a Bulgarian. It. He is not in the IFK. He actually was the IK1 world champion. Uh, and then he quit from IQ1, and now he's Kyokushin Khan. Okay, okay, that's understandable. Yeah, so yeah, he's a Bulgarian too. He's a Bulgarian too, <laughs> Zahari, Zahari Damianov. He was in Toronto here uh, for a seminar, but I did not invite him. He was invited by a different dojo. Um, but, you know, like, look, to me, uh, the most important thing after revolution, after 1990, it was, you know, kind of like the abundance of information and, know freedom to travel and to you know you had now you obviously you started to have you know the 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 newspapers the magazines and vhs players just showed up at that time and uh, you know tv channels and so we had a lot of uh, uh you know access and information and then i started i grew up a little bit right so i started dreaming about uh you know leaving the country because i noticed how the life is in other countries right you know, the, 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 the lives, the standards of life and the living, you know, and the income and just, uh, you know, a more advanced kind of uh, everything, basically. Right. So exactly. I, I started dreaming, is like, you know, I'm going to live. I'm going to go. I'm going to go out from this country. Plus, don't forget in Romania. Yes, the, the revolution happened, but the mentality, the corruption, it was still there. And to this day, it's still there after what, 29 years of, revo- of the revolution. 
Very, it's kind of yes. I did, uh, and since because I'm a his, uh, I have a bachelor's in history, so you know, being a a, a very like I'm a very big, uh, I'm very interested in that period specifically, especially the end, because my mother is of Russian descent, um, born here, but you know, she, our relatives and 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 like our whether it's grandparents or great uncles have told stories of how they fled during the revolution and then during the civil war, and it's very like it's very it's like you become very humbled by it. And then you understand like when you live in a country, like say, as you just said, when you move for a better income, better lifestyle, you really appreciate, start to appreciate it. Like when you understand the history of like what exactly, exactly. Like, I'm so grateful to be here in Canada. Uh, you know, I lived before in the United States uh, for about eight years, but I was a different uh, situation going on there. But look, when you live, when you go through hardship and then your life changes into better, then you're going to appreciate it more for sure. That's, that's a fact. But, you know, for me, it was not just the income and just the money. And just because I'm not actually, I'm pretty humble. I, I've lived pretty modest even now, but it was the corruption that really, uh, the bureaucracy and the corruption that really bothered me. You know, I mean, you couldn't even today to this day, honestly, but even before it was even worse, you couldn't solve, do anything without giving bribes, you know, giving bribes left and right, uh, if you wouldn't do that, then the process would be very slow and complicated to uh, or to do anything, right? And to me, that that was just unacceptable. And to this day, I don't accept it. And I never gave a penny, a, a cent a bribe to anyone, and I will never do that. You know. Exactly. Yes, I understand completely. My my dad's side uh, was living under the Shah of Iran, so you could imagine. So I'm sure uh, you, if you, I'm sure you're a very intelligent man. You know the history of Iran in yes, a sense. Yes, so yes. they left too because they they were under a good situation, but they didn't want to contribute to the corruption that was going on within the the monarchy. They came to Canada in 1965, and uh, they they just said like they told the stories of like how like one side of Iran, like in Tehran would be very rich. Like it'd be like, it'd be like living in Toronto or Montreal, but then you go to the countryside, like say uh, like what's where Quebec city is or like Montremblant. And it's so poor. Like the poverty is so evident because of the gap and the corruption going on. So they saw that a change was going to happen and, you know, thank God they left. And you my, and uh, I was born in Canada because I could, like any one of us could have been born in, uh, could have been dealt a very bad hand, whether you were born in a, dic a, a tyrannical dictatorship like North Korea, um, a communist regime in the, uh, and during the iron curtain era, you never know. Yes. And it's, and every, and I think with martial arts, sensei, Fogra, uh, sensei Steve, what I, what I see when I talk to people about their backgrounds, when you understand why they do, whether it's Kyokushin or any other art, there's a, such a beautiful story behind it. And it makes you curious to learn more about that person. Yeah, we all have our own stories, right? I mean, depending on the situation. But, you know, if you have a passion for something, uh, the sport or arts or anything, you're going to go for it no matter what. I mean, there are so many inspiring stories with people from all kinds of uh, countries, from war zones, from poverty, from... Africa, for you name it, right? And they still become uh, great uh, uh, athletes or musicians or uh, leaders, or right? I mean, if you have the drive, uh, sooner or late, later things will kind of happen to you, and you keep pushing it and keep pushing it. And, and same thing with me. It took me many, many years to leave the country. Uh, it wasn't easy because you would not be able to get visas easily. Romania was kind of blocked. 
by all, all countries to travel, even though we became democratic and everything, but it was a process. It didn't just happen overnight. It took like 10, 15 years for, for the other countries to slowly accept us and, and give us entry in their countries, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't easy to get visa, right, to, 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 to leave the country. You had to build a proper file, go to interviews, and then be accepted or rejected. You never know, right? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. It wasn't easy to leave the country, right? But for me, uh, competing and uh, being in the national team for a few times, uh, that was kind of like the, 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 the way out. That's how I, and not just for me, many, many athletes and, uh, you know, artists left the country that way, you know. You're gonna get the visa as a, a member of a national team, you know. Dave, there's a loophole there that can make it the process yeah, faster. Yeah, it was. It was. Go now, it. now you can travel. Yeah. Now you can travel. Now, now it's. Uh, now you even for Canada, Romanians don't need visa. They just jump on a plane and they can come to Canada uh, as visitors. Mm-hmm. But when I was planning to leave the country, my first uh, uh, thought was to go to Spain because I had some connections there and. I thought I'm going to go to Spain, but that didn't work out. And then, uh, you know, I was part of the national team and uh, the team was coming every year to, to, to New York, to the, to the uh, America's Cup, you know, the, the New York tournament in July, usually. Mm-hmm. So July, August, September, whatever, every year is different. And then I thought, okay, how about if I go to the U.S., right? And uh, I made it uh, two, three years in the national team and then with the team, we uh, we came to uh, to to the U.S. in two thousand one. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Oh, that's sorry, but no, I'm sorry for interrupting. There it was just like so. In two thousand one was when you were in the U.S. And what facilitated the move to Canada? When did that happen, and how did it happen? Well, you know, I lived in the states uh, for about eight years, mm-hmm. right, from two thousand one, two thousand eight, seven, eight years, and. Uh, you know, I just lived my life there, but there I did not have a legal status, right? Because I kind of, you know, deflected from the team and I didn't go back. But that not secured me uh, any refugee status or anything because Romania was not anymore a communist country, right? So I could not ask for any, any, uh, any visa or anything, right? So I met my wife there, actually, you know, she was my student. That's another story that... Uh, you know, <laughs> so in 2005, uh, uh, I met her and then, uh, you know, we kind of lived together and trained together and everything. But, uh, you know, we just made a decision to move back to Romania because we didn't want to stay in the States uh, in that uh, way, you know, being uh, uh, without documents and everything. Right. And uh, we just moved back to Romania because in the meantime, in those seven, eight years since I was in the States, Romania kind of made progress. They joined the European Union. So now you could go anywhere in Europe and establish and live, you know, yourself. And, uh, you know, so we just moved back by ourselves to Romania. But the shock was huge, right? So after eight years in the States, when we moved back, it was just a crazy shock. You know, you wouldn't believe it uh, that, you know, those years can really transform you so much like after living in North America, you know? Yeah, you gain You're perspective. You're like, oh, I cannot. Yeah, I, I just, I just, man, this is just ridiculous. And like I said before, we just realized that even though, I mean, we like it to be there with the family and, you know, the places and the country is beautiful, uh, you know, but the corruption was still there. Bureaucracy was still there, you know? I mean, simple, a simple task like registering your car, it took me like six months and 
you know, like a thousand euro and stuff like that. And it's like, come on, that's just a simple task of registering a car. It should be like half hour and a few bucks, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that it doesn't make sense. Like, oh. it's like you see the differences and like of how easy it is in a country like North America. And then you look yes. back at your home country and then like you see you when you have people complaining, they're like, oh, the immigrants are taking our jobs and all that. They're not taking the jobs. They're exactly. hustling. They're trying to make their life better for themselves exactly. and their kids. Exactly. And and like every time like I'm with them, like, like, like I take Uber sometimes, you know, we all have. And the Uber drivers that I meet, they're like, you know, they're like you and I, they, they have a story, some of them. And I always try to like get to know them a bit, just to understand them and build some rapport. So I can really understand like how lucky I am and appreciate it because like a lot of people do have it hard. And even when I was training in Kyokushin in my old school, like we had some guys that like they had the talent, but they were just very self-destructive with themselves, but uh, coming from different backgrounds, you know, whether they came from a war zone and they're still living with that trauma or they had like a very difficult childhood and, you know, all they had, was Kyokushin to keep them going or keep them afloat with their daily life. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just that's interesting. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. For some people, that's what martial arts are. That's what Kyokushin is. Uh, uh, it, it's a way to keep balanced and, and keep, you know, keep going. Right. To me, it was the same way. Like for some reason, even today, uh, it's hard to explain why I, I, I stayed with martial arts. Why, why I didn't do something else. Why, why, why is this something that, that I want to do so much, but in the end of the, at the end of the day, if I really kind of summarize it, why I do karate, it's just it keeps me balanced. It keeps me it keeps me going. It gives me a reason to to get up in the morning and uh, I enjoy it. Right? I mean, I had to do all kind of jobs and because I wasn't uh, always a full time martial arts instructor, but so I had to do you know I was teaching part time most of the times. So I had to have all kind of jobs as a necessity to pay bills and stuff. But I was extremely unhappy every job that I did, no matter what I did. I did everything. I did sales. I did construction. I did a lot of stuff. It's just never really found my place. And I always felt that uh, I just don't want to do that. I want to do martial arts. It's like right? that. So, yeah. Go on. I'm sorry for interrupting there. You had a, you were going Yeah, on. so that's, that's pretty much it. You know, to me, that's. It wasn't really the comp- the competing. It wasn't really the becoming like a great champion, or you know, it was just it, it kept me it kept me focused and balanced, and the joy of putting up the gi and throwing some punches and kicks and doing a kata and doing some sparring and doing some push-ups and sit-ups and sweating and focusing your mind only on that particular training session. It really just balanced me after after training. I'm just all relaxed and. No matter what uh, other problems I had in my life, uh, it kind of, you know, disappeared when I was on the mats and training and putting up my gi. And it became a ritual after a while, right? After you do it for long enough. Now I have what? I have 36 years of training right now. But after a while, you know, let's say you train for about three to five years. It slowly becomes a ritual, a habit. And, you know, just the fact that when you put your, on your gi and you tie your belt, Already, there's a switch in your head that that even maybe subconsciously it's there, and uh, you just uh, do it, and you feel good about it, uh, about yourself, and you sweat, and and then you're starting to realize slowly later the health benefits, you know, and you know the confidence level and the discipline, and the results will come too, like competition and belts and this and that, right? So, uh, 
yeah, we all have our own reasons, obviously. But after you do it for a longer time, you know, you kind of realize more deeper meanings of why, why is this uh, important for you? Exactly. Like for me, like I'm a green bells right now. So I started uh, Kyokushin. Uh, maybe you've heard it on past episodes, but like, I'll just get like, I, I, like, I always feel like it's important to say why I do the podcast and how Kyokushin helped with that. So after my dad passed away, long story short, five years ago, I was in a bad place. Very bad, like, you know, bad circle, bad not Typical scene out of a movie. I found Kyokushin, started doing it as, you know, went back, goes back to watching a Dolph Lundgren film by coincidence again. And then I met my uh, current coach who saw me at a very bad place. And, you know, he sat me down and he really spoke to me, like trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, I opened up about, you know, being diagnosed with a pervasive developmental delay, a very mild form of autism um, and other amongst other traumas that I had. So luckily, you know, my coach was able to work with me through that. Like he was very supportive. And after I won my second place at the tournament in May and then just deciding to figure out my why, like, you know, to me, Kyokushin is very therapeutic. It's, it's like my therapy, like to express myself when I'm competing. As you said, it's a form of expression. And every time I compete, you know, or like when I'm doing something like I, I, it makes me, it's very rewarding when I have like a former peer who's going through something, sensei, come up to me. It's like, oh my God, like that's, that's uh, amazing what you're doing. You know, it gives me motivation or, you know, I have a friend or two that like also have like some form of mental illness and they see that and it motivates them to go to the gym. And that's what I, I, I feel Kyokushin has given me. It's really given me a purpose um to even like go about with my to carry it in my life too where like i try to treat people with respect and humility um as i'm still learning after uh you know being in a bad spot but it's coming and you know i really feel it's the incremental changes that dr gives that i think people should realize whether it's uh, bjj judo uh shotokan or kyokushin it's like they all like make you a better person that's right. That's right. That's the that's that should be the primary goal in my view anyway for training martial arts. It's not really the competition or whatever. It's uh, it's to be better, right? To be better at everything, you know, kinder, nicer, better person, smarter, more intel, more disciplined, more confident. Right. So that's what we should try to to achieve. You know, it's like okay, there's periods in your life when you're gonna be focusing on competition or getting belts or getting this or getting that but overall day by day you should try to get better right i mean it's not an easy thing to, to improve every day it's it's difficult to 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 always stay focused and you know disciplined and committed to your training schedule and to your lifestyle and it's i see many times students they kind of lose focus on that you know they do really well for a while and then just gradually fade away even with the proper guidance and then some disappear and then they come back again after a year or two <laughs> and they restart again. And I've seen this uh, multiple times, actually. Some do it multiple times during their 10, 15 years of training. And it's their personal journey, right? It's their demons that they have to overcome, right? We all have that. And whatever it is, uh, uh, you know, you have to find a way to keep doing what uh, makes you happy and what keeps you balanced. And for some, martial arts are a way to, to do that, right? And that's why they gravitate back all the time. They come back uh, to train. Like, I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Canada for, what, uh, nine years now. And even during these nine years, 
we have students who quit, quit uh, several times. They quit, restart, quit, restart, quit, restart, right? Because there's something that, uh, that brings them back because they know that that's how they feel better and more balanced and, and, and you know, happier and they enjoy the community as well, right? So it's their personal journey that they have to follow, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I love how I really want to go on to that. You said community. Um, the Kyokushin community is one that's really united. And when I started opening up about my struggles with mental illness and, you know, like also, you know, with constant bullying and why I got into Kyokushin, I've, I've been getting so much support. So when anyone listens to the podcast or I post something, it means it. that's the most rewarding of it. It's It's nice to know that there's such good people in this in the community of this martial art and and i really you know with the commercialization of bjj uh it's great but i really think kyokushin should also get its credit too because it's it's now becoming more modern luckily you know with more promotions like glory kickboxing and you know we're seeing some traditional martial artists in like the in mma but I want to ask you, why do you, how do you think we can make Kyokushin better like BJJ? How do you think we can commercialize it and make it as big? So at least when people are choosing between arts, they have options. So that way they can well, really see the benefits. You, you, you know, you're talking from the point of view of you being in North America. Mm-hmm. Because it's not that way in Europe. Kyokushin is bigger than BJJ or kickboxing or anything in Europe. Right? In mm-hmm. Russia, right? So it's not, I hear this is relative because if you compare in North America, yes, Kyokushin is not as big, but BJJ just started like, you know, the past 10 years, 10, 15 years to really develop, you know, and everything. But, uh, you know, there are ups and downs in every, in everything, right? Ups and downs in your life, there's ups and downs in, 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 in organizations, in, in anything, right? I mean, <laughs> BJJ is, it has a great growth now because of mixed martial arts and everything, right? If UFC mm-hmm. would have not happened, BJJ would have not grown like this. Right? UFC was the one that influenced this, this growth, right? Exactly. Uh, and, uh, Kyokushin is still doing good. And one of the reasons why Kyokushin doesn't maybe grow as fast because we still do it in a traditional way and most of the dojos still do full contact. And, you know, life uh, in North America especially, but now in European, in Western Europe too, it's a little bit more comfortable and, you know, it's a different uh, school system now. Kids being taught differently. You know, it's a little bit softer. And then Kyokushin, it's a little bit uh, demanding, too demanding, harder for them. If you teach it traditionally, you really find out that many kids or even adults are quite uh, shocked and is like, "Oh, this is hard," and I don't think I can do it. And especially in in in, in more or should I say, more advanced countries where life is uh, more comfortable, right? Exactly. So that's one of the reasons why Kyokushin, it's one of the reasons why Kyokushin doesn't really catch that easy, right? It's not a very commercialized style, right? And the, the way of teaching is quite militaristic, you know? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of physical training involved in Kyokushin, right? We do a lot of push-ups and, you know, a lot of sit-ups and squats and we condition our bodies and, it's a hard style, right? So it's not, let's face it, it's not, uh, you know, easy for beginners to, you know, to do that. So in my dojo, for example, because of my location, uh, I'm close to the Russian community, right? So, I mean, 70% of my adults in the Kyokushin class are Russians or Ukrainians or whatever, right? And uh, these people are used to, you know, work hard and, you know, face difficulties in a different way than 
some uh, people who come from other countries that the culture and the mentality is different, right? Mm-hmm. So I have, even in the kids' class, I have Russian kids. And I mean, many times uh, the parents of the, you know, the kids, uh, you know, Russian origin, they're going to come and tell me, I want you to train them hard, you know, make them work. You have my permission to yell at them, make them do push-ups, like stuff like that. You're not going to hear that from a Canadian background uh, or, you know, you know, they're not going to do that. So it's a different mentality. Kyokushin, it's still taught in a very, you know, traditional, uh, you know, disciplined way. I'm still doing it in my dojo, right? My kids will do push-ups if they're misbehaving. I'm yelling at them. Uh, if they don't do well, I tell them you don't do well. So we don't use this, uh, uh, you know, kind of North American style of like, oh, yes, very good. You did amazing, even if they do bad. Mm-hmm. Right? No, you want to be so honest. One of, the, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why Kyokushin, I believe, it's, my, it's just my view, that uh, one of my reasons, one of my belief that Kyokushin is not that popular because it's not so commercialized, right? Plus, don't forget, kids in Kyokushin, or kids, whatever, anyone in Kyokushin uh, gets their black belt after six, seven, eight, ten years of training. Now, other karate schools, Taekwondo, or other, they're going to get it in one or two years, max three, right? Mm-hmm. So let's not forget that part, too, because maybe for some of us, belts are not that important, but for many kids and many parents, it's like, oh, so when do I get my black belt, right? Mm-hmm two years whatever right so uh, that's another part like i said the commercial part also it's still different um so i don't personally i don't think that kyokushin will ever be as big as any other martial art in north america but you know what i don't even want it to be that big because that means it's gonna slowly kind of dilute and lose from from the core principles and uh you know just the way it is in North America, the life I see, how kids are being raised, uh, how school system is, it's different. Therefore, kids are a little bit softer and the instant gratification also, that doesn't help in our society right now. Every, everybody wants things right now or yesterday, you know, if it's possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, when they join a Kyokushin Dojo and they see that, you have to learn this and this and this for just for your 10th cue, just for your first belt. And you have to do push-ups and this and that, and, and then the fighting involved. And Right? So that's one of my view, the why Kyokushin is not as big in North America. And also, you know, uh, it had a period, golden age, you know, back in the 80s when, you know, Shigeru Oyama was quite big, Oyama Karate back in the States. And, uh, I mean, things go up and down and now UFC, you know, is big and MMA, obviously, and BJJ and Muay Thai. And, but, you know, I was just talking with one of my friends about BJJ. This is what's happening now in BJJ is what happened in the 70s for like, to karate, right? Karate had a huge growth, you know, and then it started to be very commercialized. Therefore, now you have a lot of McDojos. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Yes, they heard. They said they were talking about that on Joe Rogan with Faraz of how that commercialization yeah. Pollute. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's like I had to just really say I agree 100%. I heard this on uh, Faraz Sahabi spoke about that, where he said in the 70s, we saw that shift with Taekwondo and other styles of karate to just give the black belt like it's like a McDonald's. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, same same's going to happen to jujitsu. I mean, I, I maybe this is a controversial uh, uh, affirmation, but I think it's going to happen, and it's it, it will. It's inevitable because of the growth and because of the commercialized. Like you know, you have a big academy. Uh, you know, you want the academy to do well. Uh, you're going to give out belts and this and that. I'm not saying it's going to happen right now, but maybe it's already happening. Uh, but uh, it's going to be hard to maintain uh, the purity if the growth is tremendous, right? And there's, there's always there's going to be many people who will open now. They're going to see like, wow, look, look at that BJJ Academy. so successful. I'm going to open one too. And another one, another one. And you see that opening all around. Only nine years since I'm in Toronto, I see a lot of new schools, right? A lot of new schools. So it's really... It's hard to tell. And again, my perspective is a little bit different. It's, I have the perspective of those who have been in martial arts for more than 30 years, right? And as you see ups and downs and you see, you know, things being born and evolve and fall or, you know, it, you never know, right? So one thing is sure, uh, Kyokushin is doing pretty, pretty well in my view. I mean, yes, there's separation between groups, but just look how big uh, the, the KWU tournament was this past weekend in Kazakhstan, you know, and uh, the level is incredible, and the level of organization is incredible. And there is, there's in Europe, these huge tournaments. They have huge seminars, by the way. Last couple of years, they had this KWU uh, seminar with 1,500 participants. I mean, just the, the sheer number of any other martial arts, actually, I don't think they managed to make a seminar that big. I think Yokushin at uh, uh, that uh, that uh, event in Bulgaria, uh, event organized by the KWU, Kyokushin World Union, uh, between like three, four organizations, they managed to make a huge seminar, like I said, 1,500 uh, participants. Yeah, the seminars are something else, like, and they do such a good job of like keeping it like, they know how to wait to like, kind of like how they put like they, it's like the carrot and this, it's like the carrot, leaving the carrot for the rabbit, basically to catch it, like you put it out, but then you keep it, then you like kind of keep it a secret and then people find out on their own and then they're like, oh, wow, like, this is actually something that could benefit me as an art. So it's... I oh, really... The seminars are a must. The seminars are a must. Like, for example, look, in, in, in my situation, uh, when I uh, started Kyokushin, like I said, I opened my own dojo as a blue belt. There were only a handful of black belts in the whole country, right? And uh, for me to be graded, right? I, I was 8Q, you know, I was a blue belt be graded i had to go to a national seminar like i didn't have a sensei nearby not even in 500 kilometers right mm -hmm. so i had to go to the yearly we had a summer camp in the uh, at the black sea every year and we had a winter camp uh, camp in the carpathian mountains in the winter right so every year we had two seminars that i was attending and getting graded right so the seminars usually were one week and at the end of the week, uh, on Sunday, you were grading, right? So that's how I took uh, all my grades, all my ranks, right? I went to seminar, then graded. Went to seminar and graded. So it's incredible because you get to work with a lot of people, to meet people from all over the country, or now if, you, if it's an international seminar, people from all over the world. So you develop like this, uh, this friendship, and you're looking forward every year to go to seminars, right? To go to summer camps, to go to winter camps to train in the, in the in the black sea over there in the water and it's traditional right and uh that's how it was now it's different i tell this to my students too look you are in my dojo i'm a fourth done you start with me from white belt i can grade you all the way up to your second done 
but I want you to go to seminars, right? That's why we always invite, I invite, uh, uh, you know, teachers from other uh, countries, different levels, like we had, you know, Sean David Pictel, we had Hanshi Arneel, we had Sensei Darren, we had Sensei Gorako from Russia, and we also participate, we went to uh, Sensei Damiano uh, seminar, so, you know, I went to Shihan Gilbert seminar. By the way, just a little uh, short story here, when Shihan Gilbert was in Toronto, like maybe three, four years ago, we went to his seminar, organized by Sensei Darren, and uh, so I was doing the, that's the first time I trained uh, with uh, Jean Gilbert. And uh, so I was training and then uh, it was black belt testing. Some of the students were getting a uh, black belt and then I participated in the, in the fighting, in the Kumite, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, after a few rounds, uh, you know, when I was resting, waiting for my turn again to go in, he comes to me, he's like, you should, uh, you should go and compete. I'm like, well, Shihan, I'm, I'm done competing. I'm retired. I did my, my share of competition. Now I'm retired. And uh, he's like, no, no, no. You have to go compete and fight uh, Mohammed <laughs> in Montreal. Uh, you... That was the first time when, when I heard of Mohammed, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to like boast too much about my coach. I want to be humble, but, but uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's well known every time. Um, he like people see me with them, like they say they're like good guy, yeah, you know, yeah, great coach. Yeah. I, I kind of compared. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't know why. Wow. Uh, why Shian said that? And I, I well, after that, I told him, oh, well, Shian, I'm retired. Uh, I'm I'm 45. Yeah, I was. Uh, this was like four years ago. And I, I'm 45 years old. I'm retired. I'm not now. I'm focusing on on teaching and you know, developing my dojo. And but he's like, no, no, no. I think it would be a great fight if you would fight Muhammad. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't know who's, who's Mo, who's the sensei. And then I looked up and I was oh, okay, he's a very good fighter. Anyway, so uh, that was a kind of funny story that uh, Jean Gilbert uh, brought up this one, you know. <laughs> Interesting. He's going to love hearing that story. Um, yeah, I definitely compare, like, you know, like, it's like, I like sometimes when uh, I watch a fighter in Kyokushin, I like to kind of compare them to an MMA fighter in a sense, but they're striking only. And yeah. when people ask me, who does your coach remind you of? I always tell him he reminds me of my favorite fighter, Gegard Musasi, because Mo really knows how to like use his reach. Very like mm -hmm. very calm in that in those fights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was saw his fights. Yeah, extremely, yeah, extremely relaxed and uh, nice, clean, uh, explosive techniques. Yeah, it's that it's that Middle Eastern power. Like I like to joke around with. It's where he's come where he comes from. Um, now I like to do this with all my guests. You know. And I did it with Junior, so I'm going to ask you, Sensei, whether you – I know you have an extensive – you know your history of combat sports in the mainstream. Now, if you, let's say you're a promoter, okay, and you have the chance to be Dana White, Scott Coker, Chatri Sitadyang, or the guy who runs Glory, and K1, all in one. You have to make your dream pay-per-view matchup. It could be a Kyokushin. It could be an MMA. Who would be your main and co-main event? And it could be any fighter – from any era versus the present. Uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, well, I would like to see somebody like a stand-up fight. I'm more like a stand-up. Uh, uh, you know, I prefer stand-up fights. Uh, so punching, kicking, obviously. I would like to see. I liked uh, very much uh, uh, Andy Hawk. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would like to fight. Uh, like to see Andy Hawk uh, stand up with uh, with John Bon Jones, for example. That'd be amazing. Yes. Like stand up only, right? So, yes. Uh, 
Yeah, so I would, I would like, to, I would like to see something like that, uh, because I, I think like especially Andy, when he showed up in the '80s with his, you know, quite new style of uh, fighting, uh, he did amazing, and he influenced so many people in changing and their footwork and their kicks and everything, and uh, inspired so many people to, to, you know, uh, use the, the kicks, and especially he was famous with the axe, axe kick, as you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it would be interesting to see something like that. Rami, obviously, like if you would, uh, you know, compare stand-up fighters only against each other or only Kyokushin fighters, so it's a different story. But it would be interesting to see, even maybe just a sparring session, even if it's not a, if Andy would be, you know, let's let's say if you could magically bring him back and then at his age, that when he was in his prime, and then see, uh, you know, sparring with. Uh, John Jones, uh, uh, because you know, I mean, it's quite interesting. I agree, definitely agree. One era versus like the now era. Um, yes. And so, um, before we like, before obviously, I only can only get an hour in with you since you're pretty, you're a busy man. Oh, only, I, I thought, I thought we were just getting started. Oh wow. Okay. Wow. Just, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, because Anchor only gives about an hour for free. But um, yeah, I yeah. feel like we really, like, I definitely would love to do a second part eventually if you're willing to. Uh, that would be a pleasure. Like I said, I uh, don't get me started on, on, on in, in, about Kyokushin and martial arts because uh, I'm known to talk too much about this. I love it. Uh, I love it. I could always hear good stories, especially from other yeah. schools, because like, I could always learn something. And that's why I do the podcast. Um, I definitely want to help you promote the school, even though I live in Montreal. I mean, you're still part of the Kyokushin community. And my belief is I live in a, in a mentality of abundance like you do. You know, you have, like you give without you give and then you never know how it could pay back. So um, exactly. if people want to get in touch with you, you know, from this, you know, where can they reach you through social media? Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. I'm everywhere, man. I'm Instagram, at, you know, with contact kicks, Instagram, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Inst uh, uh, contact kicks, you know, it's all contact kicks everywhere. You just, there's no way if you don't, if you type in contact kicks anywhere in, in Google or YouTube or anywhere, you're going to see us, right? Because I'm always posting content, right? Always pushing the videos, the pictures, the, the, you know, trying to, and a lot of people think that I only do this just to promote my school. No, I'm doing this to inspire people a lot, right? And that's why I post a good video or a good picture from our events or from a student doing something because I want people to be inspired. I mean, don't just, don't just spend your time on social media browsing on, on all kind of stuff and looking around. It's nice to have a picture or video and it's like makes you like, wow, I want to do that. It's great. That's amazing. I, it inspires me, right? So that's why a lot of times, I would say majority of the time, that's why I'm posting. Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, we are contact kicks. It's easy to, to find us. And I mean, under if you are active on, on social media and internet, you will see us everywhere. Perfect. Well, I'll definitely pass the message along. Uh, one last message before I think I want to say before I go, you guys make amazing hoodies. Like I saw um, Pavel wear one at my on the Shin Kyokushin tournament, yeah. and I'm like, that's a nice hoodie. And he comes up to me yeah. and he says to me, oh, thanks, man. He's like, they're, they're really cool. He's like, come to this. He even offered. He's like, come to the school. He doesn't remember, but maybe he will. And he's like, just come by. And he's like, train and we'll get and you can get one. So yeah. uh, shout out to him uh, doing great work with him. I see from you. Keep it up, Sensei yeah, he's Steve. Training hard. He's training hard. Oh. He's ready to compete again next year. So he's, he's preparing hard. Nice. Well, once again, I want to 
personally thank you for taking time out of your day to do my this. My pleasure, Andrew. My pleasure, and it's an honor also. And again, thank you for everybody who facilitated this to, to, to Scott. And, yeah. you know, a big, a big shout out to everybody, to all the senseis and all the shihans in the Kyokushin community and all over the world. Yeah, let's keep, uh, let's keep Kyokushin amazing as it is. And I will definitely help promote uh, what you do to inspire others. And we, will, we shall remain in touch, Sensei. Thank you, Andrew. All the best to you, my friend. You too. Us, Sensei. Us, us. Bye-bye. Bye.